Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. The influence the medieval theologian and philosopher Thomas Aquinas has had on Western thought is difficult to fully grasp. Contemporary thinking in fields ranging from political ethics to psychology have been shaped by his writings. But Aquinas's model of the mind itself, of how we perceive and contemplate the world, has been ignored or misunderstood by contemporary scholars. Today we're talking with philosopher Therese Corey from the University of Notre Dame. She is working as a fellow at the Center this year on a new book examining Aquinas's account of the intellect and the philosophical traditions from which it emerged. Welcome, Therese. Thank you. Therese, talk to us a little bit about how Aquinas's model of the mind has been understood by scholars. Well, Tanya, it's an interesting problem, I think, for us to go back and try to recover these ancient or medieval texts talking about something so abstract as the mind. And when we try to read these texts, we tend to grasp for whatever imaginative help we can get. And we tend to use the models of the mind that we're familiar with. We use imaginative models just in the way that um, scientists use models to try to illustrate their uh, very abstract theorizing. A model that comes readily to hand for us from Descartes is this model of the mind as a kind of container or place for ideas. And we tend to think about the fundamental problems that are posed by our experience in terms of how we can connect up with realities outside this kind of internal theater of the mind where ideas are brought in. And so it's very easy for us to import that way of thinking onto medieval authors and assume that they're operating with the same models. So one of my contentions is that in Aquinas, this is really not the case. It's not so important for him to think about the mind's contact with the world or how we're able to connect up with extra mental things. He's more interested in thinking about what thinking is. And he sees thinking as a kind of transformation that happens to the knower. It's very similar to other kinds of changes that happen in the natural world. So if we imagine what happens if you put your cup of water into the microwave, for example, it's going to take on heat. It'll become actually hot. That's something new that happens to the water. And Aquinas similarly sees understanding or thinking or knowing as something new that we acquire. It's a new being in us that transforms us in a certain way. So the way I like to put this is that when we know a tree, we shouldn't think about that for Aquinas as connecting up with trees outside. We should rather think about that as the human subject becoming treeified in a certain way. So it's as though reality sort of presses in on us and transforms us in this way. That's what thinking is and understanding is for Aquinas. Where did Aquinas get this idea of mind? Where does this come from? So it's very interesting. We have evidence that he's reading people like Ibn Rushd, or known to the Latin West as Averroes. He's a 11th and 12th century philosopher of the Islamic world, lived in Cordoba, Spain and is perhaps one of the most famous Islamic commentators on Aristotle. And he brings 
to the attention of the Latin West, this way of thinking about knowing and the activities of the mind as a transformation of the human knower. So there's a lot of new sources. Aquinas is living at a time when philosophy is changing rapidly as these new sources are coming online from the Greek world through the Arabic-speaking world. And so he's dealing with these brand new ways of thinking about intellect and um, the human subject, and he's trying to import that and fuse it with some of the traditions that are already existing in the Latin world. And so we see his way of thinking about mind as a sort of, it's at the intersection of these traditions that are all coming together in a really unique way in the 13th century. And so for you as a philosopher, what does that mean? What kind of work do you need to do to recover those sources and substantive influences on Aquinas? There's a big challenge, actually, in working on figures that have been read as much as people like Aquinas have been, which is that they tend to be sort of extracted from their historical context and turned into kind of textbook figures I believe very strongly that in order to really do interesting new work about these figures, we have to put them back into their historical context and understand what conversations are they having with their contemporaries and who are their sources. And this is a big challenge for medieval authors, I think, because they tend not to be as careful about citing their sources as we're taught to do today. So there's a huge excavation work that has to be done of tracking down who is reading what at the University of Paris in the 1250s and 60s, and who had what translations available, and comparing all of these different sources and trying to track what the discussions are like at the time. You talk about a tendency of Aquinas scholars to approach intellect from below, and you want to propose a different approach that approaches intellect from both below but also from above. Explain for us what those two approaches mean and what you gain from taking both of them. Right. This distinction, the approach from below, the approach from above, these are associated with two different um, traditions of thinking about the human soul. So the approach from below is associated with the kind of Aristotelian approach, and I'm using Aristotelian in a kind of textbook sense and not in a technical sense. And from below means that you start with substances generally, and then you ask what is distinctive of different kinds of substance moving up a scale of being, and you see human beings in relation to everything that's below. So in this view, there's a kind of scale of being starting from rocks going up to humans, and each stage on the scale of being is increasingly complex and increasingly capable of doing more sophisticated things. So human, the human soul is then put into conversation with the forms of these other lower things. The approach from above is a kind of associated with the Neoplatonic tradition, and it looks at the human soul as the weakest of intellectual substances. So the frame of reference there is souls, angels, God. Um, And there what's interesting then from that perspective is what is the specifically intellectual thing that the soul can do and how is that activity different from what a pure mind or even a divine mind would be able to do? So the, the tendency in Aquinas scholarship has been to take this approach from below and see his anthropology as fundamentally Aristotelian. 
And with that framework in place, it's very hard to understand what Aquinas says about the human intellect. And I think we need to admit that Aquinas takes both of these perspectives, a kind of Aristotelian-inspired and a Neoplatonic-inspired, in order to see the human being as occupying a unique spot between these two realms so that we really can't understand ourselves except in relation to higher minds and other bodies. So just to follow up on that, what is the relationship for Aquinas between the intellect and the soul? So Aquinas takes the view that the intellect is a power that the soul has. So he thinks of souls as basically what makes living things be what they are. Plants have souls, animals have souls, um, and a soul is a kind of power pack, you could say. It's what makes plants have the ability to grow or animals have the ability to sense and reproduce. And one of the abilities that it gives us is the ability to understand. And that's that ability that's actualized when we're treeified. How has this view or Aquinas' approach to intellect changed your view of the world, or has it? Well, I think it's given me a new way to think about what it means to be immaterial. And we have this notion of immateriality, I think. And we picture immaterial things as being kind of spooky substances. So if I imagine, oh, I, you know, what, what is a ghost like? I start picturing it as a kind of bodily thing. It takes up space, but it's also able to have these special properties of floating through walls or disappearing and reappearing. But my imaginative content there is very much taken from my idea of what a body is. And I just kind of tweaked that. And after studying Aquinas' theory of the intellect, I think he really has a completely different way of thinking about immateriality to offer. And he thinks about intellectual experience as what it means to be immaterial. So it's not some kind of spooky, quasi-bodily existence, but it just is the very core of the experience of knowing. That's what immateriality is. It's the reality of knowing. And so an immaterial substance for him, something that would be purely immaterial, like an angel or God, just is nothing but a pure mind. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about immateriality. So then let me ask you about how Aquinas navigates the world mind gap. The world mind gap comes up because there's this fundamental concern that we philosophers encounter thinking about how we can access things in the world outside. I mean, a tree is a tree, and I'm over here. And it looks like if it can be present to me, it's either because I've got to somehow go out there and get it, but how do I do that? Or it's got to come into my mind. Well, how is it going to do that? And there seems as though there's a bridge there that can't be crossed. And one of the fundamental claims of the book is that Aquinas sort of avoids this problem because he's not very interested in it, I think. He doesn't think of knowing as being the establishing of contact across that gap. For him, what's important is that somehow a kind of influence is exercised by the tree on me that allows me to become changed or transformed in a certain way. And so my connection with the tree is not as important in his theory as it is in other theories, especially later theories like Descartes or Locke. 
What are the implications of Aquinas's model of intellect, or what could they be for us today? And, and what do you think its implications are for a humanistic life? What Aquinas has to offer us is a way of thinking about the transformative power of knowing. And I think it's very easy for us to reach to computational models and information processing models when we think about knowing. I mean, we're familiar with computers and we, we reach for that automatically. And so it's easy for us to sort of imagine what happens when I know as being something like what a computer does. You put input in and then you take that input and store it somewhere, and then you pull it out when you need it. And nothing about you changes. It's just that you've got this sort of inner storage that's able to add information and, and save it. And in Aquinas's view, everything that I take into myself is taken into a living being and acquires a kind of life of its own. And it's really a lot more like a tree growing a new branch than saving a file on a hard drive. And if you think about what happens when a tree grows a new branch, it acquires all of these new leaves. It develops all of these new potentials that fundamentally change what it's able to do for the rest of its tree life. And I think for Aquinas, that's true also for us. Anything that you learn becomes integrated into who you are. And it's not just sort of outputted in various ways as a kind of packet of information that you need. Instead, it turns into something that shapes your activities throughout the rest of your life. So if you think of something like a traumatic event, for instance, is something that's not just taken in and then outputted when you tell someone about it. It's expressed in all kinds of different ways. Maybe it will inform poetry that you write or musical performance that you give um, or the way that you think about something fundamentally in ways that you won't even be able to track later on. And I think that's what Aquinas's theory of knowing is sort of fundamentally getting at, is this transformative ability of knowing to shape the way that we see and we think and we live for the rest of our lives in ways we can't predict. Thank you, Therese. Thank you, Tanya. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.